If you're serious about betting, this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the Serious About Betting podcast features me, your host, Ben Cronin, and some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the world of betting. Today's guest is someone who has over a decade's worth of experience in the betting industry, both on the business side and the customer side. He's recorded many great podcasts by himself, so I'm really looking forward to this. Welcome to Serious About Betting, Matthew Trenhale. Thank you very much, Ben. It's a lovely intro you've given me there, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Very deserved intro, I think. How are you? Is everything good? Yeah, not too bad. Enjoying uh, nice warm London weather at the moment, uh, although not, not not venturing out very much, sadly, at, the, at this point. But uh, yeah, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, it's the same this end. Um, well, what we'll do is we'll dive straight into it. I think if the, the length of your podcast or anything to go by, we could be here for a long old while. We've got a couple of topics to cover, but but who knows where we're going to end up and, and how we get there. But before we get going, let's let's learn a little bit more about you. So where did where did your journey begin? Were you always made for life in betting? Was it was it what you wanted to do when you when you were growing up? Not at all. No. Um very much uh not the the person you'd expect, I suppose, to go into betting per se. Um, very uh, middle class, uh, English upbringing, private schools, the like. Very much destined, I suppose, for a career in accountancy or legal or these kind of things, banking potentially. Um, and yeah, I had no, I never really was much of a gambler. Um, I used to quite enjoy betting uh, card games and backgammon with family. Um, they always enjoyed uh, that sort of little sort of family games. I've got, got quite a big extended family who all love uh, card games, dice games, those kind of things. Um, but definitely not sports betting, that's for sure. Um, and so, yeah, and I went and studied, uh, I went and studied history at university. So no obvious, you know, no Bayesian statistics in my background or anything like that. So yeah, I definitely would not be considered um, the the kind of person I suppose you might expect to end up in not only bookmaking but uh, I suppose spread betting in London. But uh, but yeah, and no, I had a job at university uh, which I got put onto by a friend, which was just taking bets over the phone back when such things happened, and it was for uh, IG Sports, which was the uh, sports spread betting division of IG Index. Uh, was founded by a man called Stuart Wheeler, who uh, was the inventor of spread betting. And it originally had just been to speculate on the price of gold. Uh, the G in IG is actually for gold. And um, yeah, basically they got onto a good thing because uh, as a bet, it was tax-free. So you could speculate on financial markets as a bet and it became a tax-free instrument ultimately. There was betting tax uh, years ago in uh, in the UK, but uh, but yes, no, it's was a, a very very good idea by Mr. Wheeler, and yeah, they extended it to sports, and yeah, I, I was completely out of my depth, didn't really understand it at all uh, initially. Probably put my fair few share of bets on the wrong way round, and and these kind of things. But what really got me into it, I guess, was the the people, and I was trying to actually figure out the other day what what sort of the continuity, I suppose, has been in my career and I've always worked places uh, with people that I found not only you know enjoyable to work with but interesting 
And undoubtedly, trading rooms, for me, always have the most sort of interesting variation of of people. And I, I came from, I suppose, quite a a closed off background. And then I went to work in a trading room in London, and there was people from all sorts of different backgrounds, and you know, different. I hate to use the word class, but I suppose different sort of demographics, if you like. And that was really good and really interesting for me. And I, I loved the the psychology of the people who worked in in trading. And I generally liked psychology and and people's biases and opinions. Anyway, as someone, I got pretty strong opinions myself. And uh, and yeah, it was a place where strong opinions were actively encouraged, particularly if you were willing to uh, back them up with uh, with money. So. Yeah, it was it was definitely the most fascinating group of people I'd I'd ever met. To be honest, the original IG trading room, and yeah, it was. Uh, I soon got into it, and I'll be honest, I've I've never, I've never fully been totally fascinated. I suppose about the mathematics or the statistics behind it. Although I I've got a reasonably good understanding of the mechanics behind most things that are used in betting. It's more a case of I often liked how by doing things I suppose statistically or analytically exposed flaws or biases in the psychology of betters or people in general. And so I was always more interested in analytical things, not because I enjoyed numbers, but because you'd find patterns whereby, oh yeah, so punters always like to do X or they always like to do Y. And they do it in these situations consistently time and time again. And the reason they do that is because, you know, recency bias or whatever it may be. Back when I didn't even really think of these biases by name, people just said like, oh, they really care about, you know, whether they won their last match or not. And you'd be like, oh, right, okay. And you'd look through people's behaviors, you know, and you'd be like, oh, yeah, it does seem to show there is a a tendency towards that. And so that was really what I found found interesting and it, it, it extended into I, I went and worked in financial markets for a time but essentially as a a market maker for what's called CFDs contracts for difference which is a way of I suppose recreational traders to uh, trade financial markets effectively uh, invariably on, on sort of back then what was utterly ridiculous margins you know 50 100 times uh, credit kind of scenarios and you'd observe the exact same or similar types of bias, you know. And it was interesting how it translated across whether it was sports betting or, you know, well, all sorts of arenas. I dare say if I'd worked in marketing or in a supermarket or wherever, you'd observe these same biases. And and I loved the more the more um, superstitious they were or the more irrational they were, the more I loved them. You know, I, I'm sort of... I'm always on the sidelines cheering, to be honest, for the guy who has flipped his lucky coin for, you know, picking his bet. I, I kind of, I love the, a word that's come out a lot now is degenerate, which I don't, I really don't like as a word to describe people who maybe, you know, gamble for fun. Um, you know, if, if someone's an addict, then that's that's one thing. But uh, But the idea that you can have a carefree bet just because, you know, it's fun. And, and quite often, you're quite happy to let chance be, you know, randomness be your predictor that that I, I always, uh, 
I always actively encourage, to be honest, and, and quite enjoy. So whenever I, I find myself in a location where I'm betting, I suppose, like if I went to the races, uh, horse racing, you know, I would much rather bet, you know, I'd almost rather bet on a horse whose name I liked in sort of, you know, strong contrast to what my day-to-day life has involved over the past 20 odd years yeah I'm, I'm completely with you on that the the idea of that that degenerate seems to have completely changed in meaning fairly kind of recently which is a bit of a, a strange one to me but back to the the career side of things then if you since you went to to ig and, and you started in, in gold and things like that has it always been you mentioned the financial markets has it always been risk and, and trading and things like that or have you have you gone elsewhere in the meantime to kind of where you're up to now pretty much always in in some form of risk or trading so yeah i mean so ig started out originally just doing financial markets well before i i joined but um the sports department i was i went from taking bets to working uh as a golf odds compiler uh, as sort of the junior on a on a golf desk so this you know this sort of around 2000 this would be It'd be very rare to find a bookmaker that had. You might have a guy who does your golf, but um, but yeah, most bookmakers would be split into horse racing, football, and other pretty much. And even then, the other might just be people from horse racing and football. This is the UK who sort of dabbled in those other things. Whereas in spread betting, because they they took it so seriously, as you know, there was a golf desk with people with four guys, myself included. Um, who's all they did was golf, uh, which would have been unheard of um, uh, in sort of fixed odds bookmakers at the time, really. So, so yeah, so I did golf and then I did some rugby uh, union, very small amount of league. Um, and yeah, so in that time, it was pretty much pure odds compilation. So handicapping for the American listeners, I guess. And back then, the people who compiled the odds were the people who managed the risk on their odds. So we knew what bets were coming in. We moved our odds as we saw fit. Um, you know, looking at other you know players in the market as well. There were at that time there were four spread. There was Sporting Index, by far the largest sports spread betting company. Then there was ourselves. There was Spreadex, and there was uh, World Spreads in um, in Dublin or, or in Ireland somewhere, maybe Dublin and uh, Canter. So the same same division that would. Uh, be doing um, canters in Las Vegas later on, but uh, but yes, they had a, a spread betting product as well. In fact, they had a spread betting exchange, which people uh, often uh, often forget. Uh, but yeah, so I've always involved in in trading and doing my own risk then. And towards the tail end of my time at IG, they'd started to employ uh, some of the odds compilers as purely managing risk in the sense of monitoring bet tickers, which would show all the bets as they came in, and even then they were in transition. So they were notifying traders that can you see these bets coming in? Yes, I can fuck off was generally the, the sort of the standard reply. Um, but yes, in, increasingly they were getting to the point where they were. And, and of course you couldn't be in the office 24 seven. And I mean, God, when I started at IG, uh, one of the jobs as you finished the shift in the evening was turning on the answer machine because no one would be back in the office till nine the next morning. So, you know, we went from that to, you know, 24-7 online. And, uh, and yeah, it's hard to sort of have someone um, 24-7 monitoring these things. So, so yeah, so already risk as an independent function in bookmaking was developing. 
And yeah, so I, but I went into financials at the time. And um, again, that the mark, the odds compilation, if you like, of financial for, for sort of for recreational traders is you know just whacking a spread round underlying you know real uh, financial markets, so futures, contracts, these kind of things. Uh, but managing the risk of it was a little bit. It was different, and it wasn't different. At the end of the day, you can hedge perfectly financial clients if you want to. Uh, but invariably, the decision to hedge was the was the wrong one in ninety nine point nine percent. Okay, I'd say the the number of people who make money on sort of amateur financial trading is a whole fraction of the people who would make money from sports betting. It's like it, it's it's almost quite depressing to be honest. A lot of people putting large amounts of money, invariably money that they certainly can't afford to lose, maybe money even for their retirement. This kind of stuff. It it, it was. It was, you know, there was some, as if you work in betting, you'll experience some horrible things, unfortunately, as well. But, uh, but yeah, there was definitely some people who should not have been allowed to, uh, to trade their own balance, so to speak. But yeah, so managing risk there largely consisted of, you know, just watching the client trade. And we never had to manage, like, when people started doing financial sort of trading books like this, they uh, they always used to categorize it as A book and B book. So B book was people that you you know inventory that you never hedged, and A book was people that you hedged. And there was this time where everyone started in A book, so everyone was hedged. And then when they were proven to have literally no cons- no no restraint over how they traded, uh, they would say, well, there's just no point in us hedging in the underlying market because this guy trades in and out thirty times a day paying the spread, losing money. It's just, it's pointless for us to rack up the brokerage fees or or to do this, to, to hedge the client. And then slowly but surely, the B-book became no longer the exception, but it became the model. So we didn't hedge anyone. This was this was already the case before, before I went into financials. And so, yeah, so it was basically run just like a bookmaker. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, risk managing that was, you know, in terms of odds compiling, there's no, there wasn't any element to it, but risk managing that. The war was interesting was there were some people who were good and you did definitely have to make sure that their their trades were covered because with the amount of leverage you were offering, 100, 200 times your your balance, you know, you could rack up large liabilities very quickly. So if they were, if they did know what they were doing, um, there was some hedging to be done there. And I, I sort of really got into using the APIs of banks, etc., to find the best price. You know, if you think about it, different. Um, so we did a lot of foreign exchange, and foreign exchange is not traded on a, an exchange per se. Banks market make their their FX prices, and there are certain people who aggregate all that software together. Sorry, all those streams together. But by and large, you negotiate your relationship with the bank and an API with them, and They'll give you rules about how to use the API and how best to hedge. And you can get sort of, you know, reduced costs, not quite rebate, but the idea is is that you would configure your hedging software to sort of optimize which, you know, so if you're playing Euro-Swiss, so it's like the Euro versus the Swiss franc, you know, you'd maybe go to UBS, Swiss bank, you know, if you're doing... um, you know, dollar yen, it might be Nomura, Japanese bank, these kind of things, different rates. So doing that, and that was that was interesting to me. And 
I could also see the parallels at the time because by this point, odds checker was firmly ingrained in the UK mentality at odds comparison site. And, uh, and I very much thought to myself, you know, there's absolutely no reason why sports can't do just sort of an aggregated odds feed and, uh, and do that as a B2B product. And yeah, little did I know that's exactly where I would end up, uh, end up later on in my life in, in sort of that B2B world. Uh, and also I'd, I'd sort of become a bit jaded by towards the end of IG, I think, because I'd realized that it was really very hard to trade a better price from a bookmaking perspective than the market average. So, you know, if you had a reasonable margin attached to your markets and you basically just took the average price of, you know, any given five to 10 bookmakers who, who still employed actual odds compilers themselves in the UK market, that average just, you know, that, that average killed it. You know, it was, it was really very hard to, to do better than that. Um, which was sort of a lesson in humility, I guess. But uh, but yes, when you were then you went to financials where you saw this perfect market average, absolutely destroying everyone essentially because no one was beating the markets trading. You realise that yeah, this sort of feels like where everyone's going. Although in the back of your head, you're always thinking to yourself, what if everyone stops pricing things up? <laughs> and then and then the snake swallows its tail as as no one. No one's doing the initial work, but I think, um, yeah. Well, to go from to go from then history at university, and, and as you said, betting on the wrong side of gold or being on the wrong side of bets a few times in that that early part of the career, to then querying APIs from banks, and and now I assume a lot of modelling on the odds compiling side and, and data science. Those those skill sets that you've learned along the way is that stuff that has just come kind of on the job or have you then gone away and also pursued different education paths in the meantime to kind of um, hone your skills and, and learn those things that have enabled you to, to get where you are? No, no, I'm a terrible learner. Uh, I, I should almost certainly have done, made an effort at some point to, you know, I, I had uh, some statistics at school. That was the extent of it. And I had done some very elementary uh elementary coding i would say on an older oh god what were they called bbc micro or something like that you know uh but never done anything and and at any given point i probably would have been better served by uh going to do those things i might even have been better served by to be honest doing a a psychology degree or, or something something similar although i think to be honest the best the best way to learn psychology is to observe in many ways. Betting is like a completely brilliant laboratory to to observe it in. But you know, no, I, I never, I never made that effort to improve upon those things, which probably is, I don't know, help held me back in various areas. But at the same time, there always the the thing about betting is is that invariably there was someone willing to give you the the sort of the bastardized version of it, so people would take a complex white paper, maybe about someone who was pricing up, I don't know, complex securities in, in finance and say, yeah, if we rip out this and we use the, a, a constant number for this instead of a variable number <laughs> and we put it in Excel and just do that, it's, it's roughly there, isn't it? And you'd be like... There's always, always a hack to be found. Yeah, and, and to be, all of all of betting, certainly from a, an operator side, is very much Pareto. You know, how can we get 80% of the result from, from 20% of the effort? So, 
you know, it, it very much was. Um, I never felt. I, I one thing I, I in, all, in fairness, I suppose to myself, is I relentlessly read up on things, and even completely blind avenues. So, I, I for a long time I had in Google you could set up uh, sort of word alerts, you know, and phrases that would get alerts and things like that. And so when I was doing golf at IG, you know, I'd have golf betting, golf modeling, golf odds calculation, uh, golf rating, golf player rating, evaluating golfer performance, all of these. And I would just read untold articles of garbage, some of it, you know, looking for the diamond in the rough, really. And I've sort of continued to do that. Like if any, if ever anyone sort of said to me, do you have any actual genuine skills? Like I'm pretty good web browser. If if that if that can be considered, like I, I've my for a long time my bookmarks was sort of a sort of thing of pride for me because I could find you know hundreds of white papers you know hundreds of websites little blogs you know you name it um, you know pre Twitter you know it's like I, I had this huge resource of of information and I'd even sign up like you get these emails like pics emails or systems emails all of them all of them like you think to yourself oh these are just snake oil they're just garbage but i still sign up to all of them because they're sort of in my mind there was no useless information like if there's someone out there selling a system saying back every you know favorite by more than 10 points in you know basketball or whatever like that you kind of want to know because if that is garbage, well, that, you know, if it, if it, God, if it worked, great, who knows, maybe you make money doing it. But if it doesn't work, but it gets popularity and you start to see the echo chamber on the internet build up that people are like, this is amazing, whatever, then you get this thing where, right, well, if this is going to affect the market, is there going to be enough money behind this? Because it, it, the impetus behind this was that there were always tipping lines, like phone lines, you call up and pay a certain amount of money per minute in the UK for horse racing. And we used to see a sea of bets early morning of on the horses that had been put up by the tipping lines. And very much by sort of personal experience, the horse racing guys had discerned those people who had an idea, a good idea of what they're doing, and those who were just sort of charlatans. And so you wanted to know both, though, because the people who knew what they were doing we are traders would actually call up those lines because you want to find out, you know, before you get filled in by all the customers, if you can. And those who we'd also call up the ones potentially who are trotting out garbage, because if they've got 10,000 people calling every day and they're being told, look, you've got to take the three to one and you can put up two to one knowing that they're going to back it anyway, you know, it's just tremendous advantage. Knowledge is power. You know, it's, there's just no, was no downside. So I loved doing doing that kind of thing. Like I remember for a long time, there was a huge sea of email tipsters and, and so various types of people who wanted to trade over under one and a half goals, particularly one and a half goals. A lot of it was backing over one and a half goals at sort of quite strong odds on. And you thought to yourself, well, there's just no way that, you know, these, these sort of emails consisted of like average goals and the uni- Iceland Universidades 3.8. There's bound to be over one and a half. Kind of, and you thought to yourself, oh, you know, well, this this probably is, there's not much, you know, not much to be had in this really. But then you started to look at the, you know, sort of fledgling betting exchange markets and you were like, 
God, they're like people are just you know look at amount of money matched on on the big exchange betfair at the time. They'd be like, Jesus Christ, there's more matched here on the one and a half goals than there is on the two and a half goals. Like what's go- what's going on here? And you'd soon realise that people were just blindly piling in. And so, and so price chuck, chuck any price up, and they'd probably take it. Yeah. So price and sensitivity, price and sensitivity coupled with a bad idea is going to make you money just as just as good if you're on the other side of it as if you know you got good information early so yeah so in terms of improving my own skill set or learning i've never been afraid to read but that's about it i think that's a very very important trait to have and the amount of we kind of laughed a little bit about web browsing as a as a skill to have the amount of people we've had on the podcast that have talked a lot about that and i think it shouldn't be overlooked the amount of free information that is out there on the on the internet that people can take advantage of that that they probably don't should be should be highlighted um i think it's it's interesting as well to hear you talk about when often when i have a guest on here I never know when it's kind of like, oh, how did you get into betting? Like, is there an interesting sport? You never know which way it's going to go. And obviously you're saying it was actually more the the psychological side that potentially kind of drew you in. But was there, and is there kind of still in the work that you do, is there any is there any element of interest in the sports or, or do you just see it as kind of the, the job that you have to do and it's kind of numbers on a screen or, or whatever it is and there's no kind of emotional connection to like if you're going to the horse races is it just an experience or, or do you kind of get into golf or, or whatever it might be i got the the only sport that i suppose i've ever really become really invested in as a fan would be golf which is sort of what led me to becoming choosing to do odds compilation i suppose as my first choice at, at ig um and i i sort of played golf growing up uh, so I had, I, I think it, I do think it does help to a degree if you've played the sport a bit and enjoyed playing the sport, maybe for sort of further engagement. I mean, if you, if you've got a, you know, if you're a football fan and your father was the fan of that team and you're a fan of that team, that's, that's sort of a different tribal element to it. But, um, but yeah, so the only, the only sport I ever really sort of felt engaged as a casual fan that I would voluntarily choose to watch on television, to be honest, was, was golf. Um, and, and possibly, do you know what, possibly boxing, which may sound like an odd, an odd comparison, but I've always been like at the end of the spectrum there. I am a, I do you know what, this, this will sound strange maybe, but I am inherently a massive coward and there's something like incredibly horrific, brutal and incredible and fascinating all the same time by combat sports. And I think the the most powerful thing for me was I read a book called The Dark Trade, which was so William Hill, I know, much maligned in in the US. But William Hill, one thing they can be credit to is they do the sports book of the year, this competition. And the winners of this, you, you probably could just blindly read the winner of any any year from this list, just incredible list. But the winner of the William Hill Sports of the Year was one called The Dark Trade, which is an incredible boxing book. And just incredibly powerful talking about it. It talked to uh, one of the main characters in it is uh, McClellan, who was uh, uh, 
hospitalized, paralyzed uh, after a fight. And um, it sort of talked a bit about Tyson as well. And it was just incredible book about sort of the, the nastiness, I suppose, behind boxing. And boxing, again, is caricatures, it's people, it's storylines, it's narratives. So I think I loved the individual storylines and narratives. And golf used to have them as well. Like I remember, you know, I, I was utterly obsessed for a long time by the final round masters nick faldo greg norman as greg norman fell apart i was like this is incredible like you can almost see his brain eating itself alive while he's playing like he's lost in the head and i I think to be honest i found that that sort of fascinating because i sort of (laughs) i don't know i'm not hugely intelligent person but i I got quite strong emotional intelligence it's all been quite good over the years of empathizing with people and, and sort of understanding why people feel the way they do and you know, in many ways, yeah, I, I would have liked to, have, in, a, in another life, maybe be a, a sort of a psychologist or something like that. But yeah, sort of golf and uh, and and boxing the same. You know, when you, so I was a, a massive like fan of a certain type of uh, box. You know, so my favorite boxer is Duran. That that probably Hands of Stone. So that that probably gives like a picture. But this sort of um, these warriors who probably do, you know, no, I say there's no probably about it, do no good to their body. But this idea of being able to stand up and come out again and again every round, despite, you know, the most horrendous beating, that kind of incredible willpower is just, you know, something else to sort of observe. So, yeah, so I, I was found it easy to engage in the narratives around boxing, definitely. and And because golf quite often had this final round pressure factor, I always found that the... The bottle factor, as uh, was once often called in, in sort of golf betting, in in sort of you know bygone years, like how much bottle does the golf have? I think I always enjoyed that. But in terms of like, I never really liked football. I couldn't watch football. You know, like Euro '96 would have been. I was, well, I was being 16 or whatever at the time, um, which was massive in England. You know, England had a great team, and and it was held in in England. And like even then, I kind of. I enjoyed it because all my friends were mental for it. Uh, but I can't say I ever like fell in love with any of the sports. I, I, for a time, I slightly fell in love with this idea that you can deconstruct sports with numbers. Like I could have easily gone down that sabermetrics. I found that really interesting that, you know, breaking down a sport, um, you know, into sort of these measurable components and I sort of I was fascinated, but also horrified by it all at once. Because for me, you know, if there is joy to be taken out of sport, it's it's about these human stories, and this sort of brutal deconstruction of what you're seeing into just sort of raw number terms sort of feels quite unpoetic to me. But I was definitely interested, in it and certainly was a good way to make money betting. Um, so you know, I, I sort of got that. But I've now almost gone. You know, I've almost gone the other end. It's it's like uh, the baseball's a great example for me. Is that you know, Moneyball? People talk about you know sort of how incredible Moneyball is and and sabermetrics and analysis and you know this idea of the advances in um, you know ways of hitting, ways of pitching. You know the the boot camps for like where they throw the weighted balls to like load the arm up and sort of boot, like all the science that's gone into it and then we've got this sport where we have this huge divergence from a time when we would steal bases and we would bunt and these kind of things. And, and there's a lot of nuance there and it's, it's sort of varied nuance. 
And then you create a sport where there's an area where you, if you massively over-optimize it, you can break it. So people basically constantly looking to break the sport over and over again. How can we break it? You know, where's, where is, the, and it's basically like punters. So they basically brought punters, you know, pro punters have come into sports basically, quite literally in many cases. And they basically look to cheat, not cheat, break the game. Where is the way to get legal advantage over the game by not playing the game in the spirit of its founders or intended? Now you may say games should evolve. That's the way it is. But when it became all about home runs, home runs and strikeouts, and you know there was no one trying to bunt or any of these kind of things. Everyone like I remember hearing people give me huge sabermetric diatribes about like bunting is the most negative EV thing you can possibly do, or like these people who say like never, you know, always go for it on fourth down. It's like I get it, I, I do get it, and I get. I get how these things, you know, are sort of another side of a coin of making money with betting and, and analytics and all the rest of it. But so much of, I suppose, historical trends that do not have necessarily positive EV, they almost become part of the the sport. You know, they become part of the the tapestry of it, I guess. And I feel like quite often analytics will allow someone to get such an advantage that then it becomes the only way to do it. And everyone then has that advantage. And it's like horse racing is a good example. I I live in fear. One of the greatest things for me is to watch an expertly done hold-up ride. So literally hanging out the back of the field the entire race, then just to time it perfectly to come off the back and take take the race on the line. You know, a great hold-up ride is just—it's just fantastic. It—it it just makes you, even if the skill is inherently not there. Let's say hypothetically, it's just an incredible horse, and you're just basically ripping your arms off, holding it back for the entire. You know, this still gives the, you know, visual aspect of extreme skill and sort of exquisite performance. And more and more studies I read is like, you know, we've sort of bred horses so bloody well. That like if you blind basically if you blindly back hold up horses you lose more money than any other way of backing horses basically, so you back front runners and you you either lose less or in some areas of the market you know you can pretty much do it blindly and make money, so I almost like horse racing is probably the most analytically resistant sport in terms of, I would say uh, I say that. Probably in Australia, there's got all sorts of mechanical stride patterns, and all you know. I'm sure a lot of people are doing stuff about horse health, but you know, in terms of it's, it's quite resistant to new ways of thinking. But I think the moment you get someone who says, "Do you know what? We should never ever ride hold up at all, right here. We just front, just literally one pace out the gate, run as hard as we can," and it's like that's going to really destroy the sort of the the storylines in the race, you know, potentially. It's why I, I you know, I love watching, I suppose, UK horse racing more than, you know, certain other around the world where the tracks are so consistently uniform and, and similar paced and so on. You know, I, I love I love seeing, you know, oh, look, there's been rain this morning and the ground's a bit heavier than the yardstick says initially. And, you know, oh, this is going to suit a different type of running style. And this jockey pays more attention to like, I almost, whenever anyone says to me, it's too complex for a machine to model, that's when I get excited because I'm like, oh, good. No one can, no one can fuck with this, hopefully. Um, but inevitably, someone does figure out how to model it. And inevitably, uh, there'll be a way to 
you know, optimize the crap out of it. But um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I would say that I am not really in love with love with sports, but I, I love sort of little instances of sports, you know, like the, the I, I can't remember which final it was it 2005 Nadal Federer Wimbledon the, the the best one the just the incredible like so I don't not really interested in tennis at all and yet for that final you'd have struggled to find anyone more invested in that match because I saw a human storyline that I'm just like this is how can you not watch I'm someone who cries at major sporting moments so you know so do you, you are you able then to because I mean there's this there's one thing to be invested in the sport as a as a fan and things like that and there's there's often a lot of talk and debate around like the green lumbar fallacy and and how important kind of sporting knowledge is or maybe the nuances are in order to to get an edge or to be able to kind of predict things more effectively or whatever it might be do you think as a as an odds compiler then is your engagement with golf a positive for you and then then going a step further, is that emotional investment? Like, does that happen while you're at work? Or is it something that you can kind of very much detach from like work life and then write, this is me as a fan, just enjoying this, like this moment and, and nothing to do with odds or prediction or whatever it is? Well, for, for me, the moment money's down, it ruins it. So like, I, I, I remember coming out of IG in 2006, whatever it was, and pretty much everyone nearly sort of had a love-hate relationship with the sport that they were a specialist on. You know, after a certain number of years, you know, with so many bad beats, so many lost bets, you kind of, and and you're watching sport, it, like you're watching, we had screens all around us. So like in front of me, I must have had, you know, 20 screens, TVs across the wall showing different sports. And you become so utterly saturated with it. I mean, I, I, personally became utterly sick i didn't I, I i hated golf completely and betting on golf even if it had been good to me i still hated it by the end of ig by the time i went to financials i almost needed to reset um because of it because it, the other thing is is that um it, it's funny but just the nature of it quite often if you're betting analytically you end up betting on uh low variance uh individuals you know, quite often, sadly, particularly in golf, it was it was the less volatile individuals, the less the people you couldn't pick out of a lineup, basically, or had never had a headline written about them. Those the kind of people invariably that were value in betting, and I always understood that basic principle of you know, the overlooked. You know, people will always shorten players in the market. They know where the money's going to come, so that should leave, in theory, you know. Uh, value elsewhere in the market sort of thing so I, I kind of I, I would become I would try and become invested in finding out more about those players who I would inevitably end up betting on you know for some of you uh, for some of you people I suppose looking back a few years they're all coming onto the championship the, sort of the Scott Verplanks the Bovan Pelts the John Rollinses all these golfers who for the most part people just you know who the fuck is that and um, so I remember one time for a long time, the one I I, I loved was uh, Shigeki Mariyama. And um, it was ruined because they gave him uh, a nickname. They gave him the Smiling Assassin as a nickname. And then suddenly, the moment someone has a nickname, you're visible. And then the worst thing of all happened was he shot a 58 in a US Open qualifier. 
and that fucked him. You know, right after that point, you just couldn't get the same prices on him after after he did that. So it's it's funny. I, I sort of almost, you know, the money meant you had to emotionally deinvest yourself. Otherwise, it would just become, you know, the worst thing is, is if you're backing someone who you really wanted to win and also you had money on them, it just would be mentally crippling to me anyway. I just couldn't have dealt with it. So I almost deliberately disengaged. I watched, you'd have to watch the sport to trade it live. But if I wasn't trading it live, and I knew I knew some people. So there's a, I mean, a guy who I, I worked with who's a incredibly successful golf, a, a, a brilliant golf better. Um and he used to just like turn off the computer Wednesday and said, "I'd rather turn it back on on Monday." That's it, you know. I don't don't want to know. Don't want to watch a single shot. Don't want to know anything about it. Just log into the bookmaking accounts on Monday and and see see how the how it fell because you know you just couldn't live the bogey at the last on round two and you know whatever it's these kind of things to so yeah so for me I I sort of disengaged more from sport through doing it, which probably made me for that style of bookmaking. So like non, so you can, you can bookmake in a myriad of different ways, I suppose. Well, they're all the same way, but you can get your strengths from different areas. But for me, we were always being taught very much an analytical statistical model based way of bookmaking. And that encouraged you to be disengaged. And then as you were disengaged, the more you kind of could buy into the statistical modeling and so sort of it was a self-fulfilling thing. So yeah, so if anything, whatever passion I had for sports was was crushed out further by either people losing me money. Horrible that phrase, isn't it? They haven't lost you fucking money, have they? You've lost the money, you know. <laughs> but like the idea that I, I, I always used to absolutely pain me, like the string. You'd click on someone when I was on Twitter. You click on someone who'd um, won or lost the tournament, and like the string of people saying you cost me this or oh you're amazing, I just won this, yeah. and it's like that is cancerous behavior from my from my viewpoint so yeah we i mean we've we kind of we've danced around a little bit around the the kind of notion of betting let's maybe get a little bit into the the nuts and bolts of it and i mean everyone loves the idea of success in betting people literally buy into it by more often than not giving their money away to the bookmaker chasing that that idea but we know there's a very very small percentage of people that will make a long-term profit you've suggested there you kind of knew a guy who was an expert golf better and before we go any further with that I guess it's the obvious question is where are you at now are you are you betting we've we've touched upon the the work side that you do but but do you still place bets so the, the official rule for I work at Sport Radar. The rule is that any uh, any sporting body that we have a contract with, which is literally all of them, it feels like uh, we do not place bets uh, on those uh, on those fixtures associated with them. So, from my point of view, uh, that leaves horse racing, which Sport Radar, as it stands currently, has no involvement with uh, whatsoever, or dog racing as well harness racing these these sort of things so from in terms of personally it's um you know those are the areas where contractually uh you know i'm allowed to bet uh but in terms of using what little knowledge i have outside of that i have various people i work with who i provide my opinion and information on and they um you know 
I even had to go as far as to think about how best to structure these relationships because, you know, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to have a bet. I'm not a, you know, I'm not out to, you know, try and uh, screw the system kind of thing. You know, for me, it's a case of I, I pretty much have to say, look, pay me for my opinion and however you do, you do because you can't really have me just having people place bets in my name, you know, like my wife or whatever, that wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't be fair. And, you know, ultimately, uh, I don't, uh, even though I don't have any particular, I suppose, more knowledge than the market, I would say, uh, per se, you know, I, I very much want to play it, play it right. So, so yeah, so generally I, I, I just do bits on, on horses and dogs pretty much as they were the things that survived over this coronavirus period as well. Um, and yeah, but mostly I've become fairly fixated with trying to uh, trying to market make on the exchanges at the moment. This is my sort of my current like personal obsession, which for horse racing and dogs is is no easy thing on uh, on the exchanges. But I've never had so much fun losing money, to be quite honest. So, um, well, I was I was going to ask then is it is that is it about the challenge? Is it about trying to make money or is it just something you see as like, it's, it's fun to do. It's interesting. And so be it, if you lose a little bit of money doing it, it's, it's more, you get pleasure out of that, that challenge of trying to actually achieve something with it. I I found it's interesting. Like for a long time, I would do things just because I knew they worked and because people have proven to me that they, that's the way to make money betting. But I, I soon, no, I didn't. It wasn't soon, I should say. I, I, over a long bloody time, eventually realized that I was bad at anything that I didn't emotionally buy into, basically. So, and also I was fairly terrible at, like, so even if there was someone I knew to be excellent on a certain sport and they gave me a tip, I found it so grudging to place, and you may say, like, what on earth's wrong with you? And it's like, because I just had in my head that I wanted to come up with the right answer myself. If I hadn't come up with the right answer myself, then I'd in some way choose myself, which is, an ex for anyone listening, is an excellent way to stay poor. You know, to, to do not do not follow that route. But for me, yeah, I wanted to find something that not only had I figured out myself, but also that I was, that sort of almost suited my personality type, I guess. And I've always loved bookmaking, to be honest, more than I've loved uh, betting, I think. It's the truth I've come down to. And market making is, you know, it's challenging at the best of times. And it's particularly challenging on, I suppose, liquid markets with a lot of um, sharp actors within it. Uh, But I, I liked the idea of do some of these small biases, well, what are large biases within bookmaking? To what extent are they ironed out completely by the exchange? To what extent do they still exist? And to what extent do biases get created by collective sharp actors? So an example, I suppose, would be at some point the soccer markets fell in love with expected goals. I, I, don't, I can't put a year on it necessarily. But at some point, you know, someone at Star Lizard or wherever said, you know, we've got to evaluate. We've got the data now. 
you know, of player positions on the pitch. Um, we've got to create, you know, uh, an expected goal metric, and that will help us model football better and make more money. And at some point, that became, you know, filtered down to websites publicly eventually, and people and Opta data became more available or ProZone data, whoever it was. And, uh, and you know, it sort of filtered into the market. And you got to the point where you knew that the market was basically, you, you'd see um, teams have, you know, win matches four goals to nil with expected goals of like 1.3 or whatever. And you'd be like, okay, you know, very lucky obviously, to have scored 4-0. What, you know, we know already how the market's sort of going to interpret that because we know everyone's using these types of models. So in a weird way, like smart people do, can end up creating their own bias. Now, if if you believe that expected goals captures everything and everyone is, you know, if you believe that a combination of several sharp actors working together each of their expected goals models capturing a slightly different nuance of soccer. And when you combine them all together, it is just the perfect distillation of accuracy. Then, yeah, okay, you probably, uh, you, you can probably either try and build your own expected goals model and try and better that amalgamation or try and better the time when it's not fully formed. Or you can question yourself, does this methodology capture everything? If you allow the machine to compile the price with no human input, where would the flaw be? Are there teams out there whose luck, what appears to be bad luck, is not actually bad luck? It's just not yet being captured by the machine. So this is like I, I sort of termed it. I, I wrote a couple of articles about it. I think I even did them one for Mustard Bet when I was there. It's called Man versus Machine, and it was this idea that. Once upon a time, it was, you know, you versus a bookmaker who was paid to spend all their time coming up with odds, and you would lose generally because they were better at it than you. And then slowly but surely, you became, you know, competing against an amalgamation of different, you know, algorithms or machine calculations. And this idea that will these machines consistently overlook something? And, and what gave me always encouraged me was, I remember when we were doing golf modeling a lot, we'd be like, Oh, of course, in this situation, this player is going to be a massive bet. Oh, it'll be huge. And yeah, we'll all lose our money, but it will be a massive bet. And you like, you, you think to yourself while you're saying this, like, yeah, fuck, why do we do this always? And why is it such a massive bet? And why do we always lose? And it's like, and you always tell yourself, do you know what, though? It's probably just a mild bet or a small bet or maybe even fair value. You know, like, it's probably just not a massive bet. We probably have, we'd, and sometimes we'd even know the nuance that we're missing, but we didn't know how to calculate it, basically. And you assume that they're still, we're on the right side of value. And I thought to myself, when you're surrounded by people saying that, and you realize that there's sort of this collective sort of, sort of group arrogance that can develop. And I thought to myself, what if the market makers, you know, collectively are all together and they're so fucking convinced that this one method is the way to price up this sport. And because by and large, they all make money and they all shred the people who aren't using that method. You know, what, you know, yes, you've always got to sort of improve your method so to make sure that the other sharp actors aren't shredding you. But invariably, you just tend to sharpen the same knife over and over and over and over again to get it sharper and sharper. And so, yeah, I became obsessed with this idea that 
there would be certain areas where at any given time, because the information wasn't available, the machines would have to either discount it or they'd have to assume that the general public overbet it because it was something that was a bit pseudoscience-y rather than statistically verifiable. Um, and yeah, those are definitely the pockets that I tried to... And horse racing's like, literally, horse racing's the world of pseudoscience, essentially. And there's so much of that kind of stuff going on. And, you know, the, the loads has been done into modeling horse racing and a lot of it brilliant. But yeah, I, I still like the idea that if those market makers look through their records over the past 20 years, they'd be like, yeah, we do do pretty shit on those kinds of races, don't we? Yeah, well, we've made, you know, 100 million quid though, haven't we? So yeah, I'm not, not going to lose sleep over it. And yeah, you just got to be the guy, maybe, maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. The guy who finds out that, yeah, whenever they're doing that, you know, it's it's like it, the, the golf bottle factor that I described, you know, that's a classic example you know, we'd be modeling a golf, we'd be running sort of simulations of it, get to the final round, and we'd be like, right, this player, all these players, we feel that our evaluations of every player's skill level is accurate. And, you know, it says this player's, you know, 2.3 to win the tournament, according to our simulation. Look at the rest of the market, and it's three. It's like, how can they be three, 2.3? And it's like, well, you know, they just think he's going to bottle it. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, I think the market takes into account bottling too much. They always assume that all players are going to fall apart, but you know someone has to win the tournament or this kind of thing. And people will rationalize the fact that their model may not... They know their model's not correct. They recognize that the price is probably not 2.3, but they're convinced that 3 is not the price. So you know it's, not, you know it's probably not 2.3, but you also feel certain that it's not 3. And all the while, the price could be 3.5, really, true price, and everyone's fucking wrong, and you are the really wrong side of it, but until people sort of really quantify it, and you know, in contention, statistics for golf suffer from small sample sizes, you know, there's only so many times that a golf will be in a position to win a golf tournament in their career, and it's something that, you know, you can largely assume that while there is probably a, a reasonable Bayesian prior of how a average golfer performs in contention... You know, it's still a very specific thing. It really is one man and his mind playing down the stretch with, you know, three holes to go and one shot lead or whatever. There's there's a definitely a, a very specific case situational element to it. And so yeah, so for me it's like I'm all I'm always fascinated to because right now I, I still have the the Excel files twenty years old now, like sort of to run to simulate these golf tournaments and it's still fascinating to see how you know you can be orders of magnitude different from the market and you're using you know very sound inputs and it's like yeah so who's right has the collective wisdom of betfair discerned this player should be this price and they have somehow between them come up with the exact probability of this person losing their mind when they're about to win the tournament or is the machine right, or is it somewhere in between, etc.? Yeah, those those areas of the market are where I I obsess over, to be quite honest. Well, it seems kind of like a, a general approach. Then is almost picking holes in where the bookmakers are and what have they missed? Where are the inefficiencies, or like you said, what is the what are the nuances that ma- the machine isn't picking up, or whatever it might be, like bottle factor, 
a, a kind of inefficient expected goals model or, or anything like that. But the the flip side of that, and certainly what I think we see in the the market or from betters is they're they're trying to do what the bookmaker does, and they're they're almost trying to price markets from scratch. And it, it seems to be that the I don't know what territory we're getting into, but the general consensus of success is is beating the closing line. But it's like people are almost scared or a lot of people don't start with where the bookmakers are and basically try and beat them to the closing line they basically play off the bookmaker or see it as them against the bookmaker and they need to model more efficiently or, or whatever it might be so what's your what's your position on that do you think people are able to enjoy success when they they take on the bookmaker for for want of a better phrase having just observed i suppose a lot of different Recreational betters, uh, professional betters, syndicates, all these kind of things. Uh, I still think that it it comes down to you can't, you've got to kind of be true to yourself. You've got to understand what makes you tick. And I feel that if you're really enthused by the ideas about modeling sports, you know, if you really get into that, and you know that you're not very good at understanding. Like, if you ask yourself, you know, I've no idea why he substituted that player at all, or why did he do that play? I've got no idea. If you've got no idea, then, yeah, probably go to Excel. You know, because if you can't figure that out, even if it's to figure out he's doing that, it's the bad call, but I can see why he's doing that call. You know, if you can't watch sport and understand it sort of like that, then, you know, yes, modeling is more for you. And then in terms of modeling... You know, do you want to model the sport or do you want to model the market and bookmaker behavior, you know, or market behavior? Again, I think, you know, different idea that at the end of the day, people lionize this idea of uh, being right. Um, and the irony is, of course, is that even successful betters are wrong a load of the time. So, you know, if your validation comes entirely from being right and other people are wrong, well, it's going to be a world of hurt for you constantly. So then people look to find sort of uh, the sort of the the other validation, which is beating the closing line. So people now are strongly, you know, you know, lionizing that idea of, um, you know, if you beat the closing line, you've you've done it all, and that sort of that validation comes along potentially more frequently, or something that you can fall back on when you're not actually having winning bets, and. I think you can then backtest your rightness if you're doing it with a model. You know, if you're if you're being playing the uh, the odds compilation using a, a model game, you can then say, a, you can prove just how bloody right you were over the last twenty years, but also, you know, you can point. Oh, look, the market comes towards my fair number again and again going forward. You know, it's it's like. It's like I want to be right, and I want to be black and white right. As if you know, as if getting money from being right wasn't enough. I want to be absolutely nuts and bolts. You know, here's the Python code kind of emphasis on being right, and that way, you know, I can strip the. You know, if I have a model, I can strip the. The greatest advantage to me of you know a model invariably is the enforced discipline. If you're willing to listen to it, you know, if you if you have a model and you set criteria and you set your method of staking. 
you know, it should, in theory, get you doing the same things in the same way all the time. And that systematic behavior is just so much not deviating from the game plan is so much more important almost than anything else in, in my mind. You know, psycholo- psychology, again, for me is just so important. And modeling is just another way of saying, you know, this is the this is the framework I can work with that controls, you know, my psychology as well as, you know, helps me find the value in the market. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, I think that uh, there are blatantly pe- plenty of people out there because also let's, you know, not only do people love to um, be right, uh, but they also like to be lazy. And so incredibly there's sort of built up this, and the funny thing is people say, like, I don't really believe it's like this. It's like, you don't really believe it like this. But it's like, there's this element of press a button on Monday, collect money next Monday. You know, like, oh, I got a button that basically uploads data, a button that runs the model, and then a button that automatically places bets with bookmakers around the world. So three button presses. I can even maybe, you know what? Hell, why not? I'll put it all into one button press. And, uh, and you know, and I think people all sort of look for this end goal of like almost this sort of perfect passive income almost. And it's, it's a passive income that's inordinately satisfying because you're doing something that no, not many people do. And you're doing it by coming up with the right answer when other people are being wrong. It's like it's sort of, it's, it's like this sort of definitive binary validation of life. And or at the same time, it's perceived that the end the end game is to get it so you can do it without even thinking about it. So you've got to be like exceptional while being not appearing. To, it's like it's like getting the answer right without showing that you're really trying. It's like getting an A without revising for an exam. It's like you know, and you know, to me, it's like there's no there's no nothing wrong with saying that something's a lot of hard work. There's nothing wrong with saying I actually spent more hours on making this 50 grand, you know, I made this year than I would have done if I'd been doing a job. You know, like I worked 90 hours a week for the year to get my to get my 50 grand and I could have worked less hours, got a pension, you know, got holiday days, got sick pay, all of that. There's no point in, you know, in saying like I'm still happy with that and I'm still happy with having, you know, gained the success of uh, working for myself, coming up with an answer myself and you know doing that that's that's fine but um i am i am sort of slightly perturbed by the constant striving for the one button press life the so for me there's this disdain for like the tipsters and people following tipsters that are like the get rich quick thing like no thought no energy whatever it is just like these guys will tell me what to bet on i'll bet on it and hopefully i get some money like that's very easy to kind of pick holes in and and kind of um chastise people for for kind of doing that and hoping that will make them money but then on the the other side of that you've also got these people that develop like this is like the the black box type thinking where it's like they don't even know what's winning the money or how they're how it's winning the money as you said it's kind of like put their inputs in press a button and and something comes out so how does that is that kind of the same like those those kind of people are they do you see them as as real kind of success in betting or is that something that's ultimately gonna gonna fall down at at some point or another and, and could actually be a real a real dangerous way to approach betting i mean there's 
I think people need to sort of, you know, so what, how do you measure success in betting? You know, ultimately it's your actual profit versus expected profit at the end of the day. You know, it's bookmaker's margin is this, losing anything less than what I'm expected to is is good. You've succeeded. You've succeeded in losing less than you're expected to. Breaking even, that's greater success. And winning money is, you know, should be seen as being consistently over a long period of time, sample size, blah, blah. That should be considered, you know, to be the real success of betting. Now, when people talk about, like, success of modeling or success of execution or success of different ways of doing it, that's sort of, you know, for me, the, you know, the success in betting is pretty cut and dry, you know. Are you outperforming expectation? And, you know, wherever your benchmark is, you can set your benchmark and, you know, providing you beat what you set, then you can consider that a success. You know, you've, you've tried to do something and uh, better than, you know, random would achieve and, and you've done it. So, but, you know, coming back to sort of tipsters and versus, you know, people with black boxes and what, you know, I think... I wish people would really take time to understand where their advantage comes from, you know, where they're, so from my perspective, you know, it sort of boils down to, you know, information, you know, what are the, all, all successful betting for me boils down to information, execution, or bias, basically. So information in terms of, can I get information um, that other people don't have. You know, can I create that informational asymmetry with the marketplace? You know, execution, even if the information is widely known, can I analyze it better? Can I place the bets faster? Can I source outs for my money better? You know, all these execution-related things. And, and it's, it's strange because I, I always find that there is... um. You know, getting information, like if you said, oh, I get team news, you know, I built, you know, an algorithm that scans Twitter and I, I get information, you know, like some of these things, like people like the DFS community have built these like, you know, injury feed type stuff. Like everyone just thinks like, oh, yeah, it's easy to get it from Twitter, mate. It's like, oh, it's so fucking easy. You build it. It's like it's just a bit of a challenge to get information faster than anyone else. You know, at the end of the day, there are people, you know, in the finance industry you know, like that is that is all they're doing is getting the information. You know, finance industry is, you know, is so much information and execution, you know, and it's like getting, getting the, you know, getting information that no one else has. It's like when um, people use like real alternative indicators. So people who trade um, financial market spaces, Google searches, like, okay, so Google search on face mask has, you know, gone through the roof, right? Which companies you know, make face masks, buy the stock kind of thing, you know, so you're finding information and no one else, you know, is actively using in the marketplace, you're executing on it. So you're doing it really well. And then quite often there's a bias. So people build a model and they think my model makes money if it does make money because of execution or information. So they either think they've got data that no one else has, often not the case, or they think they've executed it, so they've modeled it better than anyone else. Possibly. 
invariably, if those people then look through what their model does, it's like it's like when you hear this conversation, like, oh, you know, how was um, you know, how was your baseball season? Ah, oh, it's pretty good. You know, it's like um, all right. So um, what you know, did you you know, what you bet on? Oh, mostly dogs and unders. All right, okay. Yeah, it does that most years. Do you not think that? Do you, do you ever back the favourites? Mm, no, not really. Oh, sometimes. They're not very good performing, those bets, though. It's like, right, so basically what you're saying is you've just discovered a, a bias, and just by doing something, you know, slightly more methodop... Mm, you know, by slightly sort of... Uh, oh, de-emotional about it, you know, removing the emotion from the decision-making... You've exposed bias. Now that that's maybe you know, those kind of things are are rarer now. But it's like golf. You know, when we actually broke it down to time and time again. You know, again, this is going back. Where do we make money with golf betting? It was like, well, we made money by opposing those people who'd played really well at that course before, because punters overvalued it, or who'd played really well the last couple of weeks because punters overvalued it. So we're there going like, oh, it's so cool, the simulation. Like, oh, we've run 500,000 sims and like, oh, you know, back-tested it and got, you know, five years' worth of score around date, blah, blah, blah. It's like, or, and the funny thing is there's a, a, a newspaper, you know, a betting newspaper in the UK, Racing Post. It used to publish two columns down every player's name and their odds in a grid from the main bookmakers on a Wednesday and it would show you like their last four starts or whatever as a number, so five, fifteenth, twenty-third, or whatever, and their last few performances at the course. And you could have run five hundred thousand sims and built a swanky piece of kit, or alternatively, you could have just taken those people who finished in the top ten, you know, either recently or in the course, and you could have just laid them on the exchange and gone and had your tea and, and not given a shit, you know. So it's like, and and people sort of would talk up, people sort of talk up where their advantage is. And it's like, you know, in so in soccer, you know, people will be like, oh, this team isn't as bad as people think. I'm going to back them away from home and go the under the goals. And it's like, there's already an inherent bias in there, you know, just because the way the markets were unevolved. You know, this is going again a long time ago. But essentially, like, people are like, oh, you know, I've, I've plugged in, you know, I, I've plugged in you know, all these model metrics and so on. And it's like, yeah, and, and what does it do? Oh, it backs the uh, it backs the underdog and backs the unders. And it's like, oh, since since time began, you know. And I find even people now who I've seen some models that terrify me. They're like, you know, you know these ones like the kind of barometric pressure, you know, what blood type the players are, you know, one of these full like ridiculous. And it's like, okay, uh, so what are the what are the coefficients sort of you know or something similar you know what is predictive as far as you can tell from your model? Well, about eighty percent of it's this one metric. I was like, oh right, okay, great. You know, it's like you know, it's just and so what you're basically saying is that you know it's like um, betting totals in like, so many examples of this just they're all the time. Like there was a time when blindly betting you know baseball totals, totals basis. Um, Oh, I can't remember, was it wind direction or humidity or one of these, you know? And yeah. it's just like, you know, and people will be like saying, oh, my model's really doing well on totals this year. And it's like, why is it doing well on totals? And it's like, well, I just found this website that has like these readings on the, on the, but also I've restructured the way it models hits and base runs. And I was like, mm, I've got a feeling I know where the advantage came from. You know, it's like, and people are terrible at analyzing you know, and it's like the other thing is people underestimate the execution is a great example. It's like people seem to think like 
oh, getting best price is like, you know, that's like either a given, like obviously I'm going to try and get best price or, you know, that's only part of the equation. And it's like, just blindly bet things at first price for a year and see how you do. Just go on, go on odds checker, pick a time well before or your favorite odds comparison website, whoever it may be. And all you've got to do is just pick out someone when they are the lone best price in the market uh, a couple of days before the sport actually happens. Just do that blindly for a year and you just make money. It's like, so if that's, if it's that easy, then why aren't you focusing on execution? Why are you spending hours and hours modeling on shit and, you know, scraping data and learning Python, stuff like that? You know, it's like you can be exceptional in in many different ways to make money um, and to not appreciate where you can get how much value you get from each area and where your actual advantage come from is you're letting yourself down, basically. And I I always find it incredibly refreshing when... um, People, uh, you know, I, I speak to people and they just say like, well, basically all it is is this and the bookmakers always forget to, you know, factor it in. So I just bet it blindly and it's nothing really clever. And I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, you know, you just, and the great thing is those people often when they, when they've got something that they're, you see, the moment you become aware of how small and fragile the edge is, it then frees you up to realize, oh, I ought to absolutely hammer this. I ought to go nuts. It's like the people who, those, those are, uh, I'll give you another example. This is quite hard to translate internationally, but in betting shops, or it's not, it's all right for the American market, actually. In betting shops in the UK, they have coupons, which are similar to like parlay cards if you're in Vegas or in a casino. And they didn't just have like the usual, you know, spreads or whatever. They would, you know, have these kind of pick pick five teams to get this fixed odds price kind of scenario. And it was a fixed price that was often a nice round number, looked appealing to the customer, whatever. Anyway, so a bookmaker who's now in the US um, recently sort of moved out there, bet Fred. And they did a coupon called Goals Galore. And this Goals Galore coupon was you had to pick teams. Um, I'm going to botch this. So it's over goals coupon, and you select your matches and get a fixed price. And the general the general belief that when you get over a certain number of legs in a multiple that it's hard to basically you know lose money if you've got a bit of you know bit of margin factored in there it's generally sound it's not bad you know you really can you can really give away a lot to punters if you want in the multiples area to be honest um far more than and than the industry does uh but yeah in this case someone realized well hang on there's certain matches every week where the es- expected goals or the estimated goals for these matches is like 3.1 or whatever and they're saying like we just find enough of these matches and put them together over 2.5 and the funny thing is as i hear people say like they just took i mean we're talking apps it's a miracle bet fred the way it's one of those ones where it's like if you ask people um, where you're at Woodstock, if you added up all the people who said that they're at the first Woodstock, about 4 billion people went to Woodstock. <laughs> so it's, it's the same with those, those people. If you add up all the people who claim that they took out absolute telephone numbers from Betfred Goals Galore, then Betfred's gone bankrupt 4 million times over. <laughs> it's the same thing. But there, there were people there. And the funny thing is I speak to people and it's like, I just couldn't. I'd look back and I just cannot believe how stupid I was. There was something that basically like said – Bet unlimited amounts on this. You can go into shops with cash in a satchel. Just pile it over. It looks like a great bet because it looks like you over goals in multiple matches as your as your selection. You know, 
I literally should have been, I should have quit my job. I should have mortgaged my house. I should have sold a kidney, put all my money, you know, in a bag and just gone around England into Betfred betting shops and bet this and just bet it blindly and just, you know, absolutely cremated. You know, I've, I've possibly over-exaggerated the value. It was massive, but, you know, people will say this. And it's like, it's like, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who love to tell you the story about, I actually used to come home and just play online poker, you know, before Black Friday, just now and then at the weekends. What a fucking idiot. Should have just quit my job and I should have just like literally just play, you know. And the funny thing is, is these often the people who are saying this are the people who already did take out loads of money and they're still going like, I cannot believe I didn't just but it's it's funny, you know, you always you always wish you'd had more on more on the winners at the end of the day. But um but yeah, but the truth is is that the more you become familiar with where your edge comes from and you're humble about it, the more you realize that when a really good edge comes along, you've got to absolutely cremate it. You know, you cannot hold back. And, um, and yeah, so that's um, in terms of, yeah, whether you want to do it with a model, whether you want to follow tipsters, you know, tipsters, you know, done your due diligence. You know, maybe you email the tipster, found out what they do. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm an ex-bookmaker, but, you know, I get good information, but I can't get on. So I'm just doing the tipping just to help, you know, have a regular income to help pay bills and stuff. Like, oh, right, okay, that sounds, you know, plausible. I say that sounds plausible because I know, I know professional gamblers who sell tips basically and it's largely because they tip up on markets that they will never be able to get on themselves grinding away on Betfair or Pinnacle or wherever and the, you know they sell out the stuff that they've got they got no way to monetize any other way but you know and you're like all right so I'll, I'll definitely want to get on with you know those are the kind of tipsters I want to be in you know there's a bit of actual value there so I've got them and that's all right and I've you know separated out the bank accounts and you know got all that done and the bookmakers and you know I've sent people down to the hang around outside bloody universities to get the accounts from you know new kids with no money and you know all all this kind of stuff execution whatever and you know and if they then make fortunes well absolute power to them and if they recognize that basically all i'm doing here is running my life like an actual business rather than you know some half-assed you know effort then um then you know even more power to them as far as i'm concerned it's like yeah it's like I remember my my sister had a boyfriend who was basically like an IT guy. The I like back when people didn't like really have good knowledge of how to fix their own PCs. Most people now can go on YouTube and do a lot of stuff, but you know, back in the time when people just didn't even know that like you know you could clear your history folder or whatever. You know, that he, sort of, he was sort of an IT guy in that era, and he used to just go around. He makes great money by just turning up and finding out that people like you know, just hadn't plugged their computer in and charged them 50 quid for it. And uh, he would tell me stories about, you know, people he went around um, and did, you know, he sort of said, oh, you wouldn't believe this. And then he said to me, this is, you know, this is like late 90s, 99, maybe something like that. And he said to me, oh, I went around a really odd one. They said, this guy really knew computers and his computer was, he said, in the end, I think it's like the motherboard had just burnt out. It was completely fucked. And he said, but he said, I went in there and it was literally like a greenhouse. It was absolutely boiling. And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, I went in there, never seen anything like it. He had laptops open, like four screen monitors up on two different computers, you know, everything like that. And there was this constant dinging. It was like a noise, like relentless, like being trapped in like a very sort of quiet fire alarm, just constantly going off. And I said, yeah. And he said, he's trying to explain it to me. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't work in betting. It's before I'd even got a, a proper job. And he said, yeah. So he basically tried to explain it to me, but it's like, it's like you place multiple bets and 
there's no risk, he says, but you just can't lose. Like that. And, and I was like thinking to myself, and he said, yeah, and he used to get these email alerts that would tell him when there are, and these emails were just going off all the time. And like, I said, all right. And he says, yeah, it's an incredible house. Yeah, it's like, it must have had about, you know, 10 grand, and this is 99, about 10 grand's worth of computer kit, you know, just in this one room. And like, and I, I sort of think to myself, at 99, the idea, in, you know, in 1999, the idea of basically setting yourself up in your room with 10 grand's worth of computer kit so that you could answer emails and place bets on ARBs really quickly, it'd be so easy in today's world to say, where's the skill in that? Or where's this, like, I, I absolutely can't abide those people. Like, the the skill in mastering yourself in, in exerting that sort of like strength of character to sit there for like 16 hours a day with that dinging noise so you don't miss a single arb. And back when it was like really bloody hard to deposit money in and out of bookmakers and, you know, like wasn't as easy and, you know, Nutella required all sorts of fucking hoops to jump through and like all the rest of it, you know. And this guy was just there absolutely, you know, making fortunes as sort of like the infancy of like online, you know, arbitrage and i think to myself yeah you know that guy that guy got it and you know I'm, i applaud that stuff yeah the i mean the dedication obviously to do it but also i think acknowledging that 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 person spotted an opportunity they they took full advantage of that opportunity like that that is due some kind of respect and and that is a lot of people as you said kind of sit there and say oh, why didn't i do this why didn't i do that and just because something might on reflection have seemed quote unquote easy. The fact that someone actually has gone there and done it and taken advantage of it, like you can't really knock that, I don't think. Um, but also, I mean, arbitrage is, is one thing and this idea of success, arbitrage opportunities are becoming less and less as we know it's more difficult. But do you think generally as well, if we if we go back to this idea that success is profit, expected profit or whatever to, to kind of simplify things is it becoming more difficult to be successful as a better because of the we can get on to to how bookmakers operate I guess in a, in a little bit but but more so how efficient bookmakers have become or, or how efficient the market has become and you mentioned earlier like Star Lizard or, or whoever it might be that, that betters are now competing against in the market where do you is it harder now than it was back in the day because of what is what is the reason? Is it a combination of bookmakers, betters, and everything going on and technology and stuff like that? Or is there is there one thing that has emerged that, that makes it more difficult to, to make a long-term profit from betting? I think it's... So each method and generally each, each method and market sort of has its day in the sun, I guess. Um, but with recreational bookmakers, so bookmakers who, you know, their business model is about people betting in small stakes for fun. Um, I think it is just as easy, in fact, possibly even easier, I might say in certain areas, to make money from them than it ever was. And the difference being there that you get less of a crack. So once upon a time, the only way, you know, basically you people would cotton on to you is if it suddenly turned out that you'd lost, you know, that you'd made, you know, 
they you there used to be sort of a general consensus that you could quite easily win ten grand plus you know a five figure amount of money from most bookmakers you know before things got really bad as in closed bad like quite often you'd be given like oh you can't have free bets anymore and then it'd be like oh you can't bet on you know this sport but you can bet on other sports and they used to be sort of much more staggered and now there's much more of a sort of nuclear button opinion and everyone has a lot of different ways to you know to profile accounts to make sure that um they capture the you know the positive ev better far sooner in their journey um whether it's you know measuring against the closing line or whether it's just you know easy giveaways like fucking hell this guy's logging in from a you know his address is in the uk his vpn's in the netherlands and his you know device is a mobile dongle while using a pc or whatever it's like fucking hell that, that bloke's clearly um clearly no fun for us you know kind of it's like the you know the, there's just so many ways to sort of catch people if if you want to go down that route a lot of people sort of like sort of hold back from this and i'm kind of like well look if you're if you're going to make a business that's about only taking bets from people who lose just do it. execute fucking fully on it you know get the the full scale nuke options you know because the problem is that if you start doing that it then gets real awareness as to just how few of your client base are actually going to have positive long-term returns it's like i remember chatting to someone who set up a, a bookmaker that ended up being sort of well he didn't set it up but he was sort of in the early days sort of top of the trading tree there and he said you know we got to the end of the first year and he said how are you happy and he says yeah pretty happy uh, reckon we got about twenty percent genuine. I said, "Oh, what you know? What's what's that?" And he says, "Well, about eighty percent of the customers are just there for the free bet, arbors, or generally like negative EV customers. But we reckon about twenty percent of the customers um, are sort of long-term positive EV. And of those twenty percent, we reckon that we'll cover the cost of acquisition of those customers on you know maybe half, if we're lucky." Um, and then, you know, it sort of dri- dribbled down and down and down. And like in terms of total turnover, you were lucky, um, you know, you were lucky to get even that percentage of turnover, um, you know, in terms of like positive EV expectation. So, um, so that's sort of the, so from my perspective, it's like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to put up recreational bookmaker prices and run it as a recreational bookmaker, you should just absolutely take advantage of all the technology for spotting customers who are you know are going to be long-term profitable as you can so yeah so i would say it, it's sort of become difficult to get long-term amounts of money down um at a recreational bookmaker but the pricing's no better um when i say no better it's no more um statistically accurate predictively accurate than it was really um you know from my from my perspective good recreational pricing should always have that bias built in because that bias is where you make back um, the money you lose elsewhere in, in sort of just running an operation. Um, invariably, you know, when you, um, there's various different ways you can strip the margin out of, um, out of a bookmaker's price and you can take bookmakers closing odds. And even when you strip out the margin, you know, they're, hundred percent odds if you like um do not match up perfectly with the likes of you know pinnacle to 100 percent or betfair to 100 percent 
and these um when you actually run like some sort of you know you can simulate some betting on these odds um if you simulate recreational betting patterns as in people bet these kind of outcomes more often than you'd expect etc then they've they've got the best prices they've got the best prices to make money so their prices are optimal for their client base and i think that's always been the case and by being optimal for the preferred client base they will always be advantageous to the non-preferred client base so i i think it's just as easy i think perversely it's harder to get accounts in some regards because now if you're you know a classic example of the of the person you target to get so let's say you're a, a young male college university student so the kind of person that we would have 20 years ago approached and said here's a couple hundred quid we're going to open a load of accounts in your name well that self same person now has got the internet and is saying hang on i can do this arbing or match betting or value betting or whatever I can just do it myself don't want to give these away the, you know my name as it is in the bookmaking world is worth more than 200 quid um so but you know there's at the end of the day there's a new customer born every minute kind of thing so you know there's I, I'd say that it really isn't, you know, if, if you're committed, a committed Arbor 20 years ago and a committed arbitrage player now, you know, I don't think they're, you know, if anything, there's always new bookmakers cropping up. Uh, I'd say that the failure, um, I was about to say the failure rate of not getting paid is better now. I don't know. It depends how sketchy you want to go. I mean, some people open accounts with bookmakers. That I just could not even fathom why you'd bother. Um, not not from a you know because they'll restrict you, but why do you bother? Just because it seems doubtful they'll be <laughs> solvent long enough to pay you out. But um, but yeah, no, I think I, to be honest, I just don't think I don't see that. You know, yeah, shorter leash but similar ease. Um, is it harder to beat Betfair now than it was um, in its infancy? One hundred percent. You know, that's definitely got harder. I'd say. Um, and yeah, and then the the football market. It's it's funny because once upon a time, pre-match soccer um, was probably you know the one of the most accurate markers in, the, in you know in, in the world in betting in terms of once the Asian market you know was you know one minute before kick kickoff, um, but you know there's now the argument that uh, a lot of the people who were shaping that market now either you know have moved on bigger fish to fry now bigger markets to play in or the agent network structure is changing in asia and more people are depositing directly less people using sort of the agent system so it's harder to get reasonable amount down pre-match so may as well wait till live or in general they may feel like there's not much value to be done by being pretty much being a bit live so suddenly what was gone from being maybe the most accurate don't get me wrong you know i'm pretty sure the premier league's pretty good but you know or, or very good but you know there's this definite argument now coming back that um a market you know where you wouldn't have wanted to bet against it ever other people will be let in the door now may not be you you may not be good enough yet but there'll be other people who once upon a time felt like they their edge had gone and they'd stopped looking at it and now maybe you come back it's like i don't know whether you know 
let's say hypothetically Billy Walters couldn't get his bets down while he was in jail, you know, um, let, let's say hypothetically, you know, his his associates were unable to carry on betting for whatever reason. I find that doubtful, but let's say they were um, unable to carry on betting. You know, would the how would the markets look in you know offshore or you know at the paperhead market or the you know if if, if Billy's money doesn't hit the market, do, does is there some lost accuracy uh, relative to to when he is in the market? And does that then make it easier to beat? I don't know. I mean, that, there's this idea that you know all markets sort of tend to greater efficiency, um, but you know I, I can get you. I can find some odds from 20 years ago that are like better, you know, 110, 112 percent. And when you strip out the the margin using sort of the right method and compare it to 103, 104 markets now. You know, it's not like orders of magnitude better. You know, I think you know coll- collective sort of places like wisdom. You know, if if I think of Pinnacle as basically being a a private exchange, basically where the exchange matching process is going on behind the scenes, effectively. You know, the idea of having protagonists in the market who do treat price creation in an exchange method. Um, then that is always going to sharpen the industry. But apart from that first initial leap towards that, um, I don't think there's then been like, it's not like every year, I think, my God, NFL is even more unbeatable than ever. And I call EPL is even more. So, you know, yeah, I, I think, to be honest, I think the same opportunities are, are just still, are just still there. It's like, it's, I, I meet, I meet the same people year in, year out who groan about how fucking harder it is to get on. But they're still getting richer, and they never, you know, they're never telling me like, "Oh, I've I found a way to get on, and then I'm losing all my money." It's like, well, as soon as I get on, everything's fine, um, you know. And there's there's an element of with pricing homogenous behavior, you know, with B two B operators providing aggregated feeds, you know, yes, the market tends to move in lockstep better when it's more accurate close to kickoff. But it means also that homogenous element is, you know, you're all the sick wildebeest at the same time in the early market. You know, you've got no chance of being right if everyone's wrong and you're following them. So, you know, that that in a weird way has created an opportunity that, you know, wouldn't necessarily be, you know, because once upon a time that market may be opened and there'd be three different opinions and only one you would think is value. And now or three open at similar prices and it may be that there's no outlier and you think oh maybe the game's gone for me there but then suddenly you realize that when they open all at the same price and it is significantly different to what you think it should be you get to hit it three times basically so you know thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest episode of the serious about betting podcast Remember to subscribe to the Pinnacle Podcast on your preferred platform to keep up to date with all of our series. You can also review the podcast, give us feedback and suggest future guests that you want to be interviewed.